we shared a, a little bit with some of you that this past uh, Wednesday, our Linda and I uh, were not here on Wednesday night because we were at a funeral, attending a funeral on uh, Wednesday, late Wednesday afternoon. It was a five o'clock service at Faith Presbyterian Church. And our son-in-law, his brother, 49-year-old brother, passed away with COVID. And uh, our older son had, had known him while they were at Auburn. And then later we would have connections. Then his brother, uh, our son-in-law, James, would marry our youngest daughter. And uh, Micah, they sang that song to end the service. So I've instructed my family, um, when I die, I want that song. That's a beautiful, beautiful song. What a wonderful way, what a wonderful reminder uh, that we will feast uh, in Zion. Wonderful, wonderful message. Thank you for doing that today. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Acts chapter 6. And you may want to also turn to Acts, or 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Brother Brad read that for us already. But we're going to be looking at both passages of scriptures, Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, briefly this morning uh, before we get to uh, laying on the hands of our, of our deacon candidates this day. When Jesus came, remember, he, he came to establish his kingdom on earth. And establishing his kingdom of earth meant that he had to have a band of men. He got a band of men, 12 of them. He got them together and he just invested himself in their lives. Possibly 18 months, 24 months, he invested in, uh, in his public ministry of some three years. And during that time, he showed them what it was to love the Father, to love God. And so he taught them how to do this by his own example, by his word, by his testimony, demonstrating that and helping them to understand what that meant. He also would teach them the importance that one of the things he came to do was he came to defeat Satan. He, he was going to break the, the lock of Satan in this world. So he was going to destroy the works of Satan. But he also would help to deliver us from the from the power of the grip of death in our life as well. But he also ultimately died on the cross. While he did many things, the, the, the main reason he came, he died on the cross for our sin so that our sin might be forgiven so we could be in right relationship with God and that we could feast in Zion one day in the presence of our, of our great God. And he gave us a glimpse of what the church was supposed to be. But he didn't give us all the information of the organization of the church. What he did was through inspiration, just like he inspired the word of God, he inspired men in that day, such as Paul and others that were uh, in, the, in the New Testament church. He inspired them to help to organize the church, to help us to, to administrate the kind of things that we need to do in the life of the church. And so as he gave that to these men, uh, they, they in, a, in a most amazing way, helped to give practical application to the truth, armed with doctrine, armed with the truth of God. And in a very practical way, and, and, and in biblical history, they helped to give a, a foundation of the church. One of those areas happens to be, happened to be with leadership. How would the church be led? And so there was the establishment of pastors and deacons, the two key leaders in the life of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 13, we have the, the qualification of those, of those first leaders. And those leaders, uh, we, we don't have any indication what they're supposed to do in this passage of Scripture, but we are told what they're supposed to be. Folks, being is always before doing. 
We, we have to be what God wants us to be. And that speaks of character, the character of God, and how we are supposed to have that character in our life. And so whatever the position, whether it's pastor, staff, whether it be the deacons, there's always that emphasis, as we'll see in a moment, about the leadership being right in their walk with God. Then there is the doing the work of the church. Now, when uh, Paul talked about who was involved in the church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, he talked about the holy people of God. That's you. And then he talked about the overseers, which is just one of those words, a, a generic word that was used for, for pastors and bishops and elders and superintendents. But he also mentions deacons. So today we're here because we have three men that you have chosen that have not been ordained, but you believe are men who are worthy to be ordained into the deacon ministry, into the body of Christ. And so armed with that decision that you made that decision, we're going to look at what the scripture has to say about the origin of deacons. So let's begin there. Let's look in Acts chapter 6, and we see the origin of deacons. In those days, when the number of the disciples went increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, along, with the, along among them, complained against the Hebronic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So let's stop there. This is the origin of what we believe are the deacons in the life of the church. It came about because of a problem. It came about because we have in Jerusalem at this time, we have what we call the Hellenistic Jews. These were the Greek Jews. These were the ones that, that were outside of Jerusalem that had adopted their Greek culture. And they had given up some of the Jewish practices. And then you have the Hebronic Jews. Those are the Orthodox Jews of that day. They were still living in Jerusalem. And they had kept a lot of the rituals and the practices of the Jewish faith. And it seemed that in the early church right here, many people had gathered, maybe staying after Pentecost and making Jerusalem their home. There was the need of food distribution. There had to be a sharing of food. And so in this case, we find that there were some widows, both from the Hellenistic side as well as those who were the Hebrews, that they were not being treated fairly. These Hellenistic Jews said, hey, get more going to these Hebrew uh, widows than to us. And so there was a problem within the church. And so the uh, apostles recognized this and said, hey, you need to choose. You need, you need to help us here uh, in this ministry. So that's the origin of deacons. There was an issue in the life of the church. And even to this day, while the Bible only ordains two key leaders, and that's the pastors and the deacons, the church has always been about the practical nature of solving issues and problems. Here is the start in the early church. Well, let's look at the need for deacons for just a moment. Well, the need came out of the fact that, that uh, the, there was a needing of people to help serve the tables. That the deacons, the scripture tells us, they, they had been overwhelmed uh, by that. And they said, we're neglecting the ministry of the word. So we continue in verse 3, we will turn this responsibility over to them. 
and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. Can you imagine Baptists agreeing 100%? All right. Here, this proposal pleased the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, uh, Prochorius, uh, Nicantor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So there was this need for, for the deacons. There was a problem. The problem is now being solved because the apostles said, hey, choose seven men among you. And then he gave the qualifications. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then these men were chosen, and out of it, they were able to meet the need of the congregation of that time. Just think about how many Christians were now in Jerusalem. It started out with Jesus, the 12 uh, apostles. Then it grew to 120. On the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000. Then there was 5,000 that were saved. And then there were many, day after day after day, many were being saved. So they were overwhelmed with it. Understand two things. These men were chosen not because it was an honorary position. There's no such thing as an honorary deacon. No such thing. Just like there's no such thing as an honorary Sunday school teacher or an honorary choir member. All right? They were chosen because they were visible. They were servants of the church. And, and something else. They were not chosen to be the authority, the authority now in the life of the church. That's not why they were chosen. It was not from an authority position that they were chosen. They, they were chosen because there was the need for servants in the church and people recognized them that these men had been serving in the church of Jerusalem. That's why they were chosen. Not honorary, not to be the bosses, but to be servants of the Lord. That's why we call them deacons. That's why, that's why the scripture uses the word deacons. Diakonos is the Greek word which simply means to be a servant and to, and to serve. So practically speaking, that's what these deacons did. These early men practically just ministered to the people. They took the opportunity of serving the church even at their own expense. Even though in that day in the Greek culture... It was an undignified position. And yet Jesus lifted up being a servant. Paul just made it very practical. In Mark chapter 10, verse 43, it says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave or servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be servant uh, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So who do the, the deacons serve? First of all, they serve their servants of Jesus Christ. Simply, they're servants of Jesus Christ. As God has called all of us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reminds us that, that we've all been delivered from sin, and from that deliverance of sin since we've been bought with a price, we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're his servants. But the deacons stand as the ultimate servants of Jesus Christ in the church. They're the ones that God has called to be in a 
position of example and of a testimony to the rest of the church of what servanthood is all about. So they are to be servants of Jesus Christ. But they're also to be servants with the pastor. They're to be servants with the pastor. Our New Testament example in Acts chapter 6 says that the apostles were overwhelmed with the hands-on service. And so the scripture says that they needed men to come alongside of them to take on that responsibility, for have that responsibility delegated to them so they could continue their priority of prayer and ministry of the word. Did that mean that the uh, pastors no longer were to be servants? No, they are to be servants. But not everything in the life of a pastor, an apostle, has to, uh, can be the first priority. It can't be everything that you think a pastor ought to do. That can't be his priority. His priority has to be prayer, staying in contact with God, and making sure he's ministering the word and sharing like we do here on Sunday mornings from the pulpit and other times in the life of the church. Now, yes, Ephesians 4 does say that the pastor has responsibility of training and of equipping and of encouraging. And whether it be the church staff, the church leadership, and the members of the body, he has to do that. But his first responsibility will always be with the Word of God, sharing it with the people of God, and then leading and guiding, but there'll be a lot of tasks that needs to be handed off, needs to be delegated. The deacons do not take the place of a pastor. They work with the pastor to accomplish ministry, the hands-on ministry in the life of the church. And so uh, they are servants of Jesus Christ. They are servants with the pastor, but there's a third area, and that is that they are servants to the church members and to lost people, to the people of God. First of all, they come alongside church members, and they are to help with the hands-on, with ministry that is, in the, that, that is needed. For these first deacons, it was to wait on tables. That might seem like a menial task, but it was very important in the early church. And while the task of deacons may change and have changed through these many centuries, it still comes down to hands-on. How can we serve the church? It may be the widows and widowers. It may be ministering the benevolence. Uh, for sure, Lord's Supper, one day we may be able to hand out trays again. But help with the Lord's Supper. Maybe taking the Lord's Supper to the homebound and sharing it with the homebound. There, there are a number of ways. Leadership, they take on leadership roles, whether it be committees or teams. They have leadership positions that they are serving in the church. It may be Sunday school teachers. It may be on missions both locally in our state and our nation and foreign. And on and on we can go. I know we have many at, at Elkdale as uh, in many Baptist churches. We have Gideons who love and have a heart for going out and passing out Bibles, and they represent their church. They represent Elkdale in doing that. And so on and on, we could go with multiple ministries of hands-on that they could serve the body of Christ and can serve the members. But also, they have to serve lost people because they, if they're going to follow the calling that God has put on all of us, they're going to be examples of evangelism to be sure that they're trained in evangelism and that they're sharing their testimony, they're sharing their faith in Jesus Christ. They will be an example of how a 
a member of the body of Christ is also to look out outward and, and to reach out to the lost people that are around us. So deacons had a, came about because they, there was the need of servants in the life of the church. Well, what about the qualifications? Let's look at the qualifications for just a moment of these, of these men. We read about three of them in Acts chapter 6, and there's a multiple number in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But let me begin first with this little illustration. There was a little boy. He was saved in, in his church, a, 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 an older child. And he was sitting in the pew one Sunday morning, not long after he had been saved and baptized into the congregation. And he was sitting next to an older gentleman, and the older gentleman looked sad. He looked up into the, the, that gentleman's eyes. He said, sir, are you saved? And the gentleman responded back to the little boy. He said, I, I want you to know, young man, I've been a deacon for 30 years. I've been chairman of the deacon 15 of those 30 years. And the little boy looked at him and said, well, Jesus doesn't care whatever's happened to you, but he wants to save you right now. <laughs> and I share that story because, let's face it, deacons have to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've got to know Jesus, and they've got to have a walk with Jesus. And I'll tell you the reason I bring it up. A few, in the, in the years of my experience, and we always vetted as your three men were, were talked to and, and, and share, shared their testimony and their calling. Uh, there was a time when we were doing this in, in Prattville, and uh, we had talked with this young man. He had been in church. We, we had been a Sunday school teacher, and we, we have known he grew up in the Prattville community. And, and we, he had been elected as a deacon, and we were going to ordain him. But in, our, in the deacon's meeting before the ordination, uh, he was sharing his testimony and something we had, had not heard before. He talked about making a decision when he was a boy, nine or ten years old. But then he said, and he was baptized then, he said, but I, was, but I, I believe I was saved as a, as a college student when I was away at school. And when we began to talk a little bit more about it, found out he had never been baptized by a believer's baptism. He didn't have his baptism in order. And here we were about to uh, ordain a young man to be a deacon, but he didn't have his baptism in order. Because that baptism way back there as a 9 or 10-year-old boy, that didn't count. If he wasn't saved till college, then he needed, to be, he needed to get the baptism in order, be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so it even put more of a responsibility on pastor staff and deacons vetting to hear the whole testimony and to be sure not just take it for granted because they've been around a while or grew up in the community. So it begins with salvation. Now listen to what, what we read in the book of Acts, what Luke records for us. And, and it begins there in verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known. Let's stop there who are known. The men that we are electing, they, they are known in your church. They're known in the community. They, they have a reputation. They, they are worthy of respect. And that's what, in the early church, the people that were known, these men, and so they, they had already been proven, as we'll see in the First Timothy passage in a moment, how important that is. 
Notice also they have to be full of the Spirit, not only known by the congregation, full of the Spirit. Now that word full of the Spirit, the word full, it's not talking about the quantity of the Spirit. Folks, the moment you become a Christian, Jesus uh, becomes your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit enters your life. And he get, bears witness that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives you that power. And that gives you the, the conviction of sin. And we could go on and on about the Holy Spirit. So when we say full, we're not talking about the amount. No one person has more of the Holy Spirit than anybody else. But what person can have when they are full of the Spirit is the quality of that experience. And we want men who have the fullness, meaning the quality, where they are sensitive to the Word of God. They're sensitive when God speaks. So they are full. It's, it's speaking of their total surrender to the Holy Spirit being in their life. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, but are you full of the Holy Spirit? Is there a quality where you're listening, totally surrendered, so sensitive to the, to the Spirit? We need men like that. Notice also it says, full of wisdom in verse 3. They are full of wisdom. Solomon prayed for wisdom. Jesus, the Bible says, grew in wisdom in Luke 2, 52. James tells us that if you lack wisdom, you pray for it. Wisdom is nothing more but sanctified common sense. Wisdom is not knowledge. A lot of people have knowledge, but they don't know how to use that knowledge. They don't know how to use the knowledge from the point of view of God. That's where wisdom comes in. We want a wisdom that comes from God that is a sanctified common sense where he speaks to us. And we want those kind of men that have that ability when they're sitting in meetings and after prayer there's decisions that need to be made, made and the church needs to be led. That they have that sense of wisdom that only comes from God. Now let's turn over to our... Uh, other passage, and Brother Brad read that for us, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Quickly, we begin in verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. They, they are high-principled men. Highly principled. They, they are very genuine in their walk with God. They are seriously minded. There's a certain amount of dignity in their, in their lives. He goes on to say, and they are sincere, which means that they are not double-tongued. It means they don't tell you one thing and tell somebody else something else. They are consistent in their language. They are sincere. They are consistent in how they convey themselves and the message uh, out into the world. It also says that they are not indulging in much wine. Please understand that the wine of that day is different than the wine of this day. Back then, it was just, just watered-down grape juice. And today, we have high-power stuff, whether it be wine or any other kind of alcohol. And traditionally, Baptists, and I stand with that, I believe deacons ought to be abstainers from alcohol and be a testimony. We live in a different world than the time of Jesus. And we can interpret this as being, not being overindulgent. That could be the principle for lots of things in our life. But for sure, a deacon ought to be responsible in this particular area. Verse 8, not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, they're not caught up in coveting what other people have. They're, they're not overly concerned about material things. Yes, they have good jobs. They take care of their family. They are responsible. They're tithers, if not more than tithers, being grace givers. 
They are to be an example in the life of the, of the church, but for sure not be caught up into the materialism of this, of this world. Verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. I believe it's talking about the fact that they, they have an understanding of God's word and God's truth and the doctrine. They are solid in their beliefs about the word of God. They have a clear conscience on this. Verse 10, they must first be tested, meaning to be proven. There, there needs to be a testing period where, where people see that, that they are demonstrating the truths of God's word, that they're walking diligently with God. And so there needs to be a proving, a testing of their lives. And, and he goes on to say, and then if there is nothing against them, they are without blame, let them serve as deacons. Deacons should be blameless. There should be no more rumors out there about how they're living their life. We should know consistently what they do in the church and what they do in the community. They have time. So in other words, no novices, no young Christians, none that uh, have, have just come on the scene. They need to be proven in the life of the church. They're chosen because of their leadership and servanthood. And so we want to have time to, to look at that. Verse 11, in the same way, the women and basically we've taken this to mean the wives, are to be worthy of respect as well, principled, women of integrity, not malicious talkers, not gossipers, not gossipers, not loose with their conversations, but temperate, meaning they're under control, self-control, and trustworthy in everything. They are faithful as well. And people look at the deacon's wife, and see that she is a compliment to her husband. Not, not an I, but an E, side by side, working and serving with God and the life of the church. Verse 12, a deacon must be faithful to his wife. Faithful to his wife. I know that traditionally we have read this from a King James Version, one wife at a time. And there's differences. Is that talking about just having never been divorced? Or is it taken literally from the Greek, one wife at a time, and speaking against polygamy in the Greek culture. But I like how my uh, New International Version says it when it says he must be faithful to his, to his wife. I think it's talking about sexual purity. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about there should be no immorality in the life of the man, of the deacon, that he is pure. Notice also it says, and manages his children and his household well. How can he manage the affairs of the church if he can't even take care of his family? If he's not a spiritual leader. I know that there are times, and one of the, one of the great deacon chairmen I ever had in Enterprise wound up having a prodigal son, but he was still able to serve. The son was out of his home. But the point was this, if you can't manage those that are in your household and living, then how can you do the affairs that are of the church. And so that's stated there. So when we look at these qualifications, it begins with known salvation and then walking in the Lord. Now notice another point I want you to see is the election of deacons. Notice how what we read in the book of Acts here really compares to what Elkdale does. You made, you made the suggestions. You made the recommendations. These men were vetted by your deacon uh, body. And then that group was laid before you and you affirmed the decision of who should be your leadership. Just like here. Just like the New Testament. The same way. Find among you seven men. And, and then 
the proposal was after that's done and everyone came to an agreement, then there was the ordination. Then there was the laying of the hands. There's nothing supernatural about laying on hands that we're going to do in a few moments. Nothing supernatural about it, except that it's just an Old Testament way of recognizing the impartation of God's gift of grace upon these men. God's already chosen them. All we're doing is we, we are agreeing with God, of all things, think we're agreeing with God. But what we're just saying, we're affirming what God's already done in their life. We've recognized that. That's why he inspired you. He illuminated your hearts and minds to choose these three men at this particular time. Now, let's look at the results of a deacon ministry. There are four things the scripture tells us here that happened in the church when they came together and they agreed. The first one is unity. There was unity in this body. That unity was seen in the fact that, hey, we have a need. We have a need. And they came together to solve the need, to solve the problem. And so it was to present these seven men. They came together. One of the curses of Christianity is murmuring. Murmuring. Here it uses the word complaining. Paul would talk about this in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. He'd talk about this complaining, this murmuring. And the Greek word there is, is, a, is a beehive that has been disturbed. If you've ever been around a beehive uh, that's been disturbed, there's a lot of buzzing going on. That's, that's what murmuring is all about. And let me tell you, complaining, grumbling, murmuring, those are not spiritual gifts, folks. Those are not spiritual gifts. And too often we use our energy in conflict instead of using our energy in the best way to serve the church and to serve our God. And so here there's a reminder. Yes, there was some complaining. And sometimes there are legitimate needs that need to be recognized by the church. But the church solved it in the appropriate way. Instead of letting it go on and, and, and smolter underneath the surface, surface of the church, it faced it and it dealt with it. And out of it, there was unity, there was peace, there was fellowship. Notice something else, there was freedom. It, it says in verse 3, the last part of verse 3, it says, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The, the apostles now had freedom. They had freedom to do what God had principally called them to do, to pray and to administer the word of God. Again, deacons do not replace the pastors on the church staff, but it frees them to do their priorities that needs to be done and what you have called them to do. Also notice there was growth. Did you see verse 7? So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Hey, they, they increased, they grew. And that's what happens when the pastors are allowed to do what they have been called to do by God, and the church affirms that. When the deacons do what they have been called and affirmed to do with, when the members do what they have been called to do, and it's affirmed, you can expect growth. You can expect people that will be drawn and brought to the body of Christ. And lastly, notice the reputation. We go to 1 
Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing. These men, these deacons, influence in the church and outside the church. And it's amazing in communities where when deacons serve as they ought to, how it's recognized in the community itself. They recognize that church. They recognize it has strong leadership of servants. And it will be attractive. The message of Christ will be attractive to them. Notice the last part of that verse. And great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. When men are serving, there's a confidence, there's a boldness that will come out. And it will serve them, it will serve the life of the church. Here's the ministry, the, the doctrine of the ministry of deacons in the church. And I want to commend you for choosing three men that God has, uh, has, has blessed in amazing ways. You have affirmed it. This church will be a stronger church as they serve you in these years to come. I want to just say how blessed I've been in my 45 years of full-time ministry. A Wayne Tisdale, a Bob Nolan, chairman of the deacons in my church where I served as an associate pastor in Gulf Breeze. Men like Earl Barnes and J.C. Gant in Enterprise. And in Pravel, I can name numerous, but I'll mention two, Harold Hammond and a Carl Soleil. And I'm grateful for these men who've counseled me, who encouraged me, who came alongside, recognized their part, they recognized my part, and we worked in tandem to serve God. And they always helped me to understand spiritually the barometer reading of the spirituality of the church family. I am grateful for the deacon ministry that God gave over 2,000 years ago and continues today. And I'm grateful for what you're doing here today. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have had just to be reminded of the origins of the deacon ministry, of the need for deacons as servants, the qualifications of these fine men, and how they were elected in the New Testament model. But also, Father, what the results will be, and this church can expect it. They can expect wonderful results from this process. There, there will be unity. There will be freedom. And there will be growth. And there will be reputations that will be known inside and outside the church because of their wonderful decision they've made. Bless this holy and special time as we lay hands upon these men. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.